These are the things I learned during the 48th week of 2010, November 28th through December 4th. November 28th. My grandmother's house has weird hotspots for 3G, mainly on the stairs. In 2010, 3G coverage wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as what we have today with 4G LTE and 5G, which is waiting in the wings and slowly being rolled out. In 2010, we were just getting used to smartphones. By this time, we were only on the fourth generation of iPhone, and Android was still coming into its own. And let's not even get into smartphones before the iPhone, like the Palm and Windows Mobile, or whatever Nokia had. The iPhone wasn't really even available on many carriers back then either. It was pretty much AT&T, or you had to go with an Android phone, which gave it quite an early advantage on carriers like Verizon. This led to the rise of phones like the Droid, and all kinds of other offshoots from other manufacturers. This brings me to my first smartphone, which was the LG Ally, a cute little slider phone in the vein of earlier feature phones like the LG Envy and LG Voyager. The only difference was this one ran Android. And in 2010, let me tell you, this was quite a monumental jump from the previous cell phones that I had, which could barely even offer a web browser or a basic weather application. It really felt like the future, and the promise of having just always-on data coverage via 3G, and fast data coverage at that, compared to the old EVDO and 1X networks, it was really something to behold. Phones with Wi-Fi, that was also something that was kind of mind-blowing, too. We take that for granted these days, but that was a whole new world back then. So, in places that didn't have Wi-Fi, though, like my grandmother's house, you had to rely on 3G, and not every place had 3G coverage. And sometimes it was just strange 3G coverage, based on maybe the surrounding terrain, or satellite position, or cell tower position, you never quite knew what you were going to get. And at my grandmother's house, I distinctly remember, you couldn't really get 3G coverage anywhere inside or outside the house, weirdly unless you were sitting on the steps towards the middle of the house, kind of a central staircase column. For whatever reason, I guess there was just less insulation in the house somehow, and I was able to get data coverage if I sat around there. But if I moved too far to the left or the right away from the stairs, I suddenly didn't have it again. You can probably simulate this in perhaps rural areas or more insulated parts of buildings, I suppose. But in 2010, this was a much more common occurrence. November 29th. The GNU General Public License, also known as the GPL. The GNU-GPL is effectively the law of the land for free and open source software, also known as FOSS, or F-O-S-S, -S, originally commissioned by Richard Stallman in 1989. The general gist of the GPL is that should you create a derivative work of software that is already licensed underneath it, 
you must also license it under equivalent or similar terms. As a user, usually this doesn't matter too much to you, but if you're a developer and you're making software like this and any of it is licensed under the GNU GPL, you have to pay attention to this. A lot of free software you might find online or install often contains license terms for the GNU GPL. You know, that thing that you always click next and never read or scroll to the very bottom and click I agree to? I can bet you a lot of these probably are GNU GPL licenses, if this is software you didn't pay for. This licensing model has gone through a couple of different versions to patch some things up or clear up some oversights regarding versions or what have you over the years. I don't quite remember why I learned about it at this point. I was just immersed in the world of technology, computer science, and information technology, so it was probably just by pure osmosis that I suddenly learned about this. I was also taking a network and systems administration course in college at this point, so maybe there was a chance that we were covering a topic on this very subject of free and open source software and how it is licensed. That would make sense. That would fit right in. November 30th. OSX combo updates fix things, even in Hackintoshes. Ah yes, the Macintosh combo update. Basically, this is a really fancy term for a cumulative update that you can download and install for macOS, macOS X, whatever Apple feels like calling it this week. It really was a different time back then. Cumulative updates were not done in the Windows world until about Windows 10 in 2014, and not even at the launch of Windows 10, it was sometime after the fact. This was before the Mac App Store existed as well, so there was a rudimentary software updater that you could get these combo updates in macOS, but you could also download them separately from Apple's website and install them on your own. I also checked today, and the most current version of macOS, Catalina, still currently offers separate downloads of combo updates, even though you can basically use the macOS updater to take care of this for you. This is ideal for things like system administration and whatnot. Getting back to the topic at hand, though, combo updates fix things in Hackintoshes. This is interesting. I had a netbook running macOS, which is not a supported configuration by Apple. A lot of times, you would install an update and you ran the risk of breaking your system because who knows what was going to break from these updates because you're running an unsupported configuration. It seemed like I was on a good luck streak though because combo updates, at least in 2010 November, were not causing problems but fixing them for my little Hackintosh. December 1st. Laxadaisical is a word. In case you were wondering what laxadaisical meant, it is defined as an adjective. Lacking spirit, liveliness, or interest. Languid. Affectedly pensive. Languidly sentimental. Dreamy. If any of these match your demeanor right now, congratulations, you are laxadaisical. December 2nd. Wireless lav mics have a really good range when you suspend them from a ceiling. Wireless lav mics. That must have been when I was at the TV station again. 
I think we may have needed them for a live show where we couldn't have the lav mics on people, but we had to instead get creative and utilize the low ceiling and maybe just kind of dangle them out of the ceiling tiles. It's funny because lav mic is short for lavalier or clip-on mic, so obviously it wasn't really designed for this purpose. That kind of gives it away that this was more of a jerry-rigged job than anything else. Or there is also a chance that maybe it wasn't a lav mic and it was actually a more specialized area mic that was dangling from the ceiling and maybe I just got the term wrong because I'm not very good at microphone technology and terminology, especially not back in 2010. December 3rd. How to install kexts into a Hackintosh. Question number one. What is a kext? Well, there's a couple answers to that. First of all, a kext is spelled K-E-X-T. Okay, so what does that mean? Kext is short for kernel extension, and it is a file format that, as far as I understand, is only understood by Mac OS. And when you install these kext files, you can effectively introduce large system-wide changes to the operating system and extend it, hence a kernel extension. This type of extension of the operating system does exist for other operating systems outside of the Mac world. However, it might go by a different name, depending on what operating system you are referring to. In modern versions of macOS, this method of extending the operating system is heavily frowned upon, and Apple actually no longer actively supports this, deprecating it as of macOS Catalina in 2019. But enough about the present. Why did I need Kex in the past? I had a little netbook that was running macOS. Now, bear in mind, this is not a supported piece of hardware by Apple. Not at the time, not now. How did macOS run on such a outlawed piece of hardware? Well, thanks to the modding community, they produced their own kernel extension files that made macOS friendly with the MSI Wind U100 netbook. What kernel extensions basically act as for this implementation are drivers allowing the screen to work, allowing the keyboard and trackpad to work, audio, USB ports, the computer's ability to sleep when the lid is closed, etc, etc. Apple probably wanted to get rid of this extension system to quash things like hackintoshes or exploits at the system level that the user could probably do very little to stop. Or perhaps maybe these kernel extensions weren't quite developed with as much quality as Apple came to expect, or they were not being updated as often as the operating system, leading to an overall reduced experience for those who used them. And perhaps maybe Apple attempts now to offer a better way of extending the operating system in a safe and more efficient manner than kernel extensions. There's probably a bunch of reasons, and you could probably justify it either way. There is a great trade-off, however, of 
security versus functionality. A lot of apps were used to the kernel extension method of gaining access to more advanced portions of macOS, but Apple felt that the security risks outweighed these functional benefits, and thus security won the day. If you ask me, I think there is a happy medium that could be met in the middle when it comes to these. There could be a mode that you could enable, and it could be really difficult to enable, where you could say, I understand the risk, please grant me the ability to extend the operating system in a method that may be insecure if done in an irresponsible manner. Operating systems like Android tend to go this route. It may not let you do something, but if you dig around in the options, you may be able to enable some settings that are off by default, but are there for you if you are willing to accept some risks. Apple tends to be against this approach for almost all of their software, especially with their mobile platform, iOS and iPadOS. Anyways, installing Kex in the Hackintosh was fairly simple. If you had the files, you just put them in a specific place on the operating system, and then you would reboot it, and when it came back, it would load those into the active session. Pretty straightforward overall. I have a feeling that this method does not work in modern implementations of Hackintosh and macOS and all of that. It's been a while since I've done it last. And finally, December 4th, 2010. Double-clicking on an error in SQL Server takes you to the specified line. When I'm referring to SQL Server in this context, again, I am referring to Microsoft SQL Server particularly the 2008 version. This is a fairly trivial thing for this development platform. There is an error console that displays warnings, errors, and overall status messages based on what you are doing. This is not just limited to SQL Server. This also exists in modern programs like Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio, Eclipse, Dr. Java, Insert development environment I haven't named here. One of the nice features I discovered was when you are writing your SQL in Microsoft SQL Server Management Studio, if you get an error or it parses your input as something incorrect, you can double-click that error in the console and it will take you to the location in your SQL code denoting where the error was detected by the runtime, and hopefully it will give you enough of a hint to fix it. And that is about all there is to it. It's just a nice little feature that reduces bug hunting and increases productivity. Thanks, Microsoft. And this concludes the things I learned during the 48th week of 2010. Thank you very much for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for more episodes. If you are a new listener, thank you, and hopefully you'll subscribe to this podcast. If you are a returning listener, also thank you, and welcome back. If you feel that this podcast deserves a decent rating, please feel free to give it a rating on iTunes or Google Play or wherever accepts ratings for podcasts. I will talk to you next time.